Hey, I just wanted to say hi before you listen to this episode. This is Craig. My microphone died and I tried to make some um, alterations while we were uh, recording this episode. And just to tell you, my microphone sounds horrible. So it's not you. It's not your ears. It's just me. So I wanted to apologize that. And here we go with our episode. Thanks. Bye-bye. Welcome to the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast. Thought-provoking interviews with interesting guests and commentary on everything. Food, sports, God, gardening, church, politics, music, movies, comedy, you name it, we talk about it. I'm Cody Stopper. And this is Craig Morton. On this podcast, we talk to writers, teachers, activists, and we seek some wisdom, and as always, We are allergic to big words, but not to big ideas. Profound things will be said, but entirely by accident. All right, there we go. It's going to get loud in here. Hey, we're, we're recording now. Oh, hey. All right. Hi. We, uh, we always have such a formal beginning. Oh, hey, we're on. <laughs> and so, uh, hi, I'm Craig. Hi, I'm Cody. And today we have uh, Tobin miller Shearer with us today. And Tobin, uh, do you want to introduce yourself a bit? Sure. Yeah. Uh, Tobin miller Shear. I am based out of Missoula, Montana. I work at the University of Montana, where I've been for 13 years. And my Go Grizzlies! There, that's right, exactly. Go Grizz! Um, <laughs> I am the director of the African American Studies Program. I'm a white guy who does that. One of the first things I say at the beginning of every class is to my students, I say, I want you to know that I know I'm white. There's always <laughs> going to be tension in that role. And we have good conversations about it. I'm also a history professor. And currently, one of the new initiatives I'm doing is I've co-founded and I'm currently directing an organization called Wider Stand Consulting to bring anti-racism resources to the broader public, including the church. That's awesome. That's great. Sweet. So, so Tobin, uh, one of the things that uh, I was mentioning earlier, uh, Cody and I last week were talking about preparation for Lent uh, uh, and I almost said Advent. It's like, wow, I'm jumping way ahead. Um, or you're way behind or way behind. Yeah. So I think it's ahead since uh, anyway, it's how we look at the liturgical calendar. But so coming up though is, is Ash Wednesday. And there is a a band that I have followed for a number of years, heard about them initially on, on, uh, I think relevant podcast a number of years ago. And they're part of something called the Minneapolis worship collective, um, husband, wife, Dio Jacob and Katie Eckeberger. And they, um, I don't know, there's something about their style that I really appreciate. Anyway, it's staying in touch with them. I saw that they were coming up with a song that they expected to have ready just in time for Ash Wednesday. And I said, oh, I would love to hear that. And so they sent me an MP3 to share on our podcast. So we get to listen to this new song together. And if we want to reflect on it, we can take advantage, you know, some time to do that. Um, But I thought it was a, a meaningful song, and if people want to use it for their own Ash Wednesday, there's links and uh, information on the on the podcast page 
to be in touch with my anchor holds and to get that music. So let's go ahead and take a listen. Make sure I've got this set up right. Can you hear it?
I think we'll be using that song next uh, Wednesday. That's a good one. I like it. So. I love the uh, idea of, you know, these uh, tangible things that we get to touch and feel really grounding us, you know? Yeah, there's a line in the song that says something about, let's say I jotted it down, we need to grasp onto something that's real, the tangible life-giving God. I mean, that's that's very Eucharistic there. Um, oh, that's a big word. But... <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it's, uh, there's, there's some, some elements to that that I think are really uh, kind of fascinating. I really like, uh, I, I, I like that song. Yeah, I love the idea. Just, you know, obviously I'm listening to it in a context we're in right now. So I'm thinking about like needing something real, you know, something true, something, something you know, even just simple nowadays to just grab onto. <laughs> Because so many things are virtual and we're isolated, that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes yep. sense. Yep, yep, yep. Well, last week we were talking about how to send ashes around to uh, distant church members and decided not to put powder in the mail, thinking that would be a mistake. <laughs> uh, might, but, get, might get watch listed ourselves. Yeah, but yeah. this week this week I'm going to drive around some, uh, some uh, greenery from uh, Advent and Christmas uh, for people to burn in their homes, and then we'll do our Ash Wednesday together. So, so Tobin, I was, reading some of, I was reading some of your stuff, Tobin. It sounds like you were uh, a little bit in the Episcopal Church before COVID hit. Was that right? We had a short uh, dalliance with an Episcopal Dalliance, that's the word you used, yes. <laughs> after we uh, had been invited to be part of their choir, we, we loved the folks there and the uh, choir experience, but we also became keenly aware um as we were sort of all collectively stepping away due to COVID that we're just not Episcopalians. And as much as we appreciate spending, dipping our toe into higher liturgy, it was, it was not a good fit. So actually what we've been doing is connecting with a Mennonite congregation back in Pennsylvania, pastored by uh, longtime friends of ours who um, are doing other services virtually so we can participate in that. I'll actually be giving the sermon there on Sunday. So oh really? Great! Real delight. Really so, what, 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 which which church is that, by the way? It's Landisville Mennonite, uh, pastored by Ron Adams and Gina Burkhart. Okay. Great group of how folks. do they yeah, how yeah. do they meet? Do they meet via Zoom or is it on uh, one of the live yep. platforms? Or okay, it's through Zoom. They actually have a very talented tech team that is uh, producing the Sunday service with a mixture of pre-recorded material, and then the yep. sermons are usually recorded live with limited participation in a room in their sanctuary. And I'll, of course, just be doing it from my basement when, when, I, when I preach for them on Sunday. But it's a great group of people. I, I got really excited uh, back in September because a, a congregation invited me to preach for them. And I was like, oh, great, I get to go see them. I haven't seen them for a long time. And then I went, oh, wait, I don't get to go to Oregon to go see my friends. I'm just going to sit in my, my office and <laughs> talk on Zoom. That's oh. the reality we're in. And, yeah. Yeah. Trying to explore that. Bless, blessing and a curse. Blessing and a curse. Yep. Yep. For sure. So, so Tobin, you, 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 you just mentioned the, this Mennonite congregation back in Pennsylvania. You do have a Mennonite connection. In fact, that's how I first became familiar uh, with you and your work. In fact, I think it was my wife, Carla, who either participated in some trainings that you were doing or... If it was the, was it, were you part of the Damascus Road project or dismantling yeah, racism? My, 
my colleague Regina Shanstelzus and I are the co-founders of the Damascus Road anti-racism process, and for a period of about ten years, in the 1990s into the mid 2000s, we led over 400 workshops across the country. Regina and I still partner together. We're actually in the midst of writing a new book together. Um, but yeah, it would make sense. I, I, I'm always embarrassed that people know me who have been through a workshop that we did, and I don't know them, but. My well, 400, is there, 400 workshops of thousands, thousands of people. people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. But yeah, I think, in fact, that might even have been before you had done that. We were in the Western District Conference. It's when I was pastoring in Kansas. Um, and I can't remember the years, but it was, it was, you were, you were still new at, at doing this stuff. And now, yeah. now you're just a grizzled veteran like the rest of us. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh yeah, when we look back to those early years, I was in my mid-20s and scooting around the country talking to all different kind of established churches. The fact that anyone let me in the door and gave me more than two minutes attention is a, is a small miracle itself, but uh, got a lot of experience in the process. So you're, you're now, there's a couple of things that I just found, find interesting in your story. I mean, one of the things, um, you're a white guy teaching African-American studies. You mentioned that earlier. Uh, but uh, of all places in Missoula, Montana, which reading the uh, article watch listed, you state that's the third oldest African-American studies program in the country. That blew my mind. Wild, that, huh? It's, <laughs> that blew my and, mind. And, and just in the, the not, not too distant history, uh, you know, Cody is over there in Washington where everybody's progressive, but I'm here in Idaho. <laughs> I'm on the border of Idaho. Yeah, I know. Our, so. But but it's just this region has never, uh, at least in my mind, has never really fully grasped the whole, um, you know, black, indigenous people of color, that whole reality that that, you know, doctrine of discovery and um, the the racism and just all that stuff. In fact, it was quite contrary to that. I mean, it's a white supremacist heartland in some ways. So it, it seems ironic that, that, you know, there, there in Montana, there, this yep. program exists. Yeah, it's the confluence of the uh, somewhat uh, chance arrival of the program's founder, Ulysses Doss, who's still with us, still in the area, and some activism on the part of African-American students who were on campus saying, we need to have this program. Dr. Doss was here. He started the program simply by putting a sign on his door that at that in the, in the period language said black studies program of university of Montana got the president to recognize it in the early 1968 after two other programs have been started in California and we're the third oldest program. So yeah, wow. it's, it's a distinction that we've been active since that point. We now have a major, a minor and a certificate in African-American studies. Our classes almost always fill. It's uh, it's pretty remarkable. Wow. And, and then how long have you been there in the program? This is my 13th year um, okay. here. I came here after doing my doctoral work at Northwestern in Chicago and actually hadn't sort of anticipated that I'd be on the market for African-American studies jobs. I did a dual PhD in history and religious studies, but in the, my last year there, I ended up being asked to direct the uh, African-American studies dissertators group. And out of that opened some doors. Long story short, I end up here. After I would just, it's important to note, after I spent some significant and deliberate time uh, discerning the appropriateness of me entering this, road, this role with my African-American colleagues. 
and just ask them to be honest with me. And as they said at the time, well, we think there will always be tensions and that's absolutely true, but we also trust you in that role. And I've continued to be honored with, by their trust and seeking out local accountability in the African-American community here in Missoula and in the specific Northwest. So that's an ongoing tension and ongoing reality. Many strong relationships I've developed and I've just been honored in particular by the African-American students who show up in my classes and the trust they give me to uh, fulfill this role. Do you, uh, do any of the students walk in uh, a little wary at first if they're a little <laughs> unaware of you? Oh, oh yeah, for sure. Less so now after having been here and for a variety of circumstances, I end up being a fairly public figure. So people sort of know of me before they arrive in class. Um, but particularly in the first number of years when I was an unknown factor, that would absolutely happen. But like I meet regularly with our Black Student Union just to get their feedback. When we were looking at planning this year's Martin Luther King Junior Day celebration, I met with them early in the fall and said, what do you folks want to see happen? And what they said is they, they want to hear about the stories behind the stories that, you know, what were the challenges that people like King and others faced? So I went to a, a colleague of mine from grad school, Dr. Crystal Sanders. She gave a stunning talk for us that spoke directly to those issues. That's just sort of, it's, it's not only a, a function of who I am, which is absolutely critical to talk about, but how I do the work that I do. What are the principles, the accountability structures that allow me to operate in this role with some degree of integrity? And that's something I'm always paying attention to, reflecting on and thinking about. In, in some ways, it sounds like the authority that you pre present is collegial. It's, it's, um, it's, it's not kind of like monolithic that you hold the story. And it sounds great to be able to get students those ac access to those other resources. Oh, yeah, absolutely try to. And I mean, I'm always looking for ways in particular to bring um, scholars of color to our campus. <laughs> I, I bring in scholars who teach alongside me, particularly through our online platforms. Right now, another long-term colleague of mine, Dr. Clint Theodowdy, is teaching a course for us called Black Women, Race, Class, and Gender, doing a great job. And uh, uh, Dr. Alhaji Kanti from University of Vermont comes in and teaches the first half of our African-American history survey. Um, so those kind of things, I think, also have been an important part of the conversation. So you've been doing this work, though, for 30 years, roughly. Yep. And uh, it, it seems like it would be a, a rather a compliment for uh, your achievements to be watchlisted. And uh, we mentioned that article, Watchlisted, uh, that uh, you, you, you talk about that experience and reflect on that. Uh, is, is calling it a compliment maybe the wrong word or does it kind of feel like you must be doing something right? And then the other part of that is you got watch listed from your church, kind of. You felt that, at least you, you, yeah. you mentioned that. How's that. How did that happen and how do you feel about that process? Or that yeah, it's, it's, a fast, it's a fascinating story to reflect on. So just the basics are, uh, oh, about five or six years ago now, I can't believe it's been that long already, a conservative group known as Turning Point, that is White Nationalist Connections, established something called the Professor Watchlist. Still there, I'm still on it. And their goal is to highlight and bring attention to who they say are dangerous professors who are advancing radical agenda. I got on there because of a talk I gave over at our sister school in Bozeman, Montana State University about the history of white supremacy. It got recorded, picked up by the local uh, student newspaper. 
watch list folks got hold of it. I end up in there on the, and currently I'm the only professor from Montana on there. So I've had colleagues of mine here and in elsewhere in the state say, hey, how come we're not on there? We're more radical than you are, which probably is true. It's just sort of the fact that I take white supremacy directly on. Um, I teach a course called White Supremacy History Defeat, where I, I uh, have the students explore the history of white supremacy and actively gauge in projects to undermine white supremacy and why the white nationalist movement. So I, wow. I end up getting death threats and that sort of thing. The, the parallel is that, um, oh, after about having done the Damascus Road work we referred to early for about 10 years, um, it had become so controversial that, for instance, the editor of the Mennonite Church National Publication told me on a telephone call, I can't print anything by you anymore because anytime anyone sees your name, they get apoplectic. <laughs> so they get really pissed, right? Well, can I say pissed? There we go. Really angry. You can say that too. Yeah, <laughs> that's better. We're less allergic to that word. Okay, fewer okay. syllables. <laughs> and so there was a period of about 10 years where I just got no requests from the church at all. It was rather devastating. That was far more painful, far more devastating than was the professor watch list thing. I expect that. I know how to deal with that. That comes with the territory. It was much more emotionally uh, 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 to be pushed to the margins of the church. Um, the interesting thing is that since this summer, in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, that has changed dramatically. So I was asked to be on a panel by Mennonite Church USA executives who are long-term friends of mine, along with other trusted colleagues. And in the midst of that process, and then in responding to requests by colleagues of color around me to sort of get back in the game and offering more um, direct training resources for the church, as well as other secular nonprofits through this wider stand uh, consulting organization that we, we started up this summer. I, I now am doing multiple um, speeches, consulting, trainings within the Mennonite community again, which I find so interesting is I don't think I'm saying anything different. I'm, <laughs> it's the same basic content stream I've been saying before, but the church has shifted and there seems to be an openness to, you know, it's not all about me, obviously, right. but um, that my story, that's what I'm experiencing right now. So you've, you've been doing this for 30 years. You, you, when you see um, events such as this summer with the murder of George Floyd and kind of an immediate response, it seems, uh, by folks who uh, wanted to support Black Lives Matter to make public vigils, to, to, to make a, a, you know, public statements. I'm, I'm assuming you were not surprised or, or it's, it's, I mean, you, you saw these things coming, but the church kind of went, oh, wow, where'd this come from? And then kind of yeah. secondarily gets involved. Or How do you think the awareness of the church is to these issues? And do you think that awareness has some staying power this time? Well, that's the question, right? So I mentioned my long-term training and writing partner, Dr. Regina Shanstos, who's based out of Goshen College in Indiana, are, are right now writing a new book. It's the, the current title we think that we're going to end up with is called Been in the Struggle, Seeking an Anti-Racist Spirituality. 
Although what we joke about is that we are tempted to name the book, We Told You So, (laughs) (laughs) because we've been talking about white supremacy for a very long time. And suddenly it's like people say, oh, we didn't know about this. No one told us about that, which is actually a concern because when we look at the expressions of white supremacy within particularly mainline Christian denominations and the broader evangelical community, what we know is that there is a recurrent and historic amnesia about not only the church's involvement with systems of white supremacy, but previous attempts to address it. That just gets forgotten somehow. Mm. So that we attempt to sort of, I think what's going on is the attempt to be able to rewrite our innocence by saying, mm. hey, we haven't had, no one told this before, so we get to get the fresh start card. We get to start from- We get a pass for everything else. <clears throat> oh, wow. I, I do think there needs to be a chapter, we told you so, somewhere in the book. Maybe as an, maybe <laughs> yeah. as an epilogue, if you start off with that, they yeah. might not read the rest, so. Oh, wow. I I remember years ago uh, reading an article, Christianity Today, I think it was, probably in the 80s, but it was one of those early articles that I had read, and it was kind of formative, but it it used the term fad. The article was written not too long after We Are the World and some of those movements to to, uh, uh, take on world hunger, maybe. And you know, everybody gets involved. There's a lot of energy to create and get into it. And some good stuff gets done. And then the next fad comes along and then the next fad. And I think that seems, at least in my mind, is like the challenge. How do we, how do we make it, you know, give it some staying power? We were just, um, Dr. Stoltus and I were just working with a um, architecture f- firm yesterday. We series of workshops we've done with them. And they asked us what is the most effective markers we have seen in groups that bring about change. And it's actually paralleling the conversations I've been having with large mission agencies, in the Mennonite church with several large congregations that want to know, okay, how can we actually not have this be a fad, right? And what we consistently tell them is the first thing we have to keep in mind that for us as a, a consulting and training firm, we're really not interested in what you're going to do from a month from now. We're mildly sort of curious about what you'll do in six months. We begin to be interested of what you're doing a year from now, five years and 10 years from now, because that's where we see the substantive change. And then we talk with them about how you put internal structures in place to be able to do the work sustainably, not episodically. One of the things I talk about is that for too long, the white church in particular has linked attention to racism with crisis. So that we have to find a way to decouple the conversations about racism with national crises. How can we make it part of the practice and movements and liturgical cycles of the Christian community that we're paying attention to this, particularly in the white community, so that we can do the work in a sustainable fashion? And that's the conversation we're very interested about having right now, so that it's not just a fad, like you say, Craig. Well, that sounds like it's also the work of a historian. to say this isn't about the crisis, the, the the thing that we notice here, it's been in development for centuries. Yep. Uh, we are in the yep. flow of this thing. In fact, it seems like history could, I mean, normalize it. Not, I don't know if that's the correct word, but be, make us familiar with it enough to go, hey, we've been living with this for a long time. Yep. 
uh, we, 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 we can. In, in our training formats, one of the pieces that participants consistently refer back to as having been most impactful to them is about a half hour input piece, interactive piece we do about the history of Europeans in North America and note the overwhelming percentage of that time at least 75% of the history of Europeans in North America, only white people were considered to be human. Up to 88% of that history of Europeans in North America, the laws of the land established so-called separate and equal, which were never either, but it's only been the last 12% or so that we thought we should do something different. And for that time, most of the things we think we should be different, particularly in the church, to try to look more colorful without asking ourselves, how are we preparing the church to not only grieve its participation in that past practice and ongoing practice of racism, but how are we preparing our members to resist that racism on a daily basis? Mm. I mean, and that connects to the song we started with. Um, I just this morning was working on a section of a chapter where coming out of the conversation Regina and I had yesterday, that one of the core values we think the church needs to be claiming in this moment is that of finding a way to grieve, to grieve the past and present participation so that we can be freed for action. Because we, we collectively, particularly in, in predominantly white domination, we've not done that, that grief work. And yeah. we know just in, from sort of an interpersonal uh, level, if we don't do that grief work when we're involved in either loss or participation in sin, we don't have a way to move forward with integrity. So wondering what that looks like. We don't know yet, but I think that's going to be an important part of the conversation. Songs like that gesture, that gesture to it that's as good. well. Yeah, excellent. So almost as if the church has a framework that we can use and borrow where we talk about lamenting, repentance, stuff like that. We just need to maybe broaden it or be more honest about perhaps our participation in white supremacy so we can, because we already have the, infrastructure in place not infrastructure but you know the the um the practices yeah, yeah practices yeah 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 there you go <laughs> yep 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 absolutely that's the kind of explorations we have in fact this one congregation i was talking with last week as they're sort of imagining their path forward to becoming more anti-racist uh, a pastor there actually a long-term friend of mine said you know have you ever worked with a congregation before where at the outset of their sort intentional practices we had a ritual of grieving, marking, and, and remembrance. And I said, no, we haven't done that before, but that is exactly the kind of thing we need to integrate at both the congregational level and the denominational levels in uh, various religious institutions across the country. So I'm very excited to see where they're going to go with it because I think they're on to something. Mm, I like it. You know, the, the, um, those, doing those practices, you know, making that, feel what's the word but make it feel normal in the in the in the in you know the way we practice our faith to be aware of these things to free it from a crisis or the latest news story or some some issue um does that how do we keep it uh, penetrating or fresh um i guess because it seems like people are really attracted to responding to you know major events what, is, what are some ways that we can make those practices ongoing and real? Um, just, yeah, how would we put that in a worship service or a Bible study or right. you know, prayer groups, right. that kind of stuff? Well, I think sort of we, all, as, as Cody mentioned, we already have some internal 
rituals, practices, and cycles into which this kind of remembrance and reflection can be integrated with ways that have integrity. Just the liturgical cycle of the year. What would it look like? I, I don't think this would happen every year, but if Lent was a process for remembering that past. Um, this year, Easter falls on April 4. This will be the 53rd anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. How does that influence and affect our reflection on Easter, given the moment in history we're now inhabiting, where we not only have the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, but we have the rise of white nationalism once again resurging throughout the country? What does that mean for our reflection of, of Easter in that context, as you recall King's assassination? Those kind of opportunities are there. This in, in terms of the cycles of, I often think of Christian formation. So in this book that Regina and I are writing, we're thinking a lot about what it means to be spiritually formed, to have the uh, resources we need to push against systems of oppression like racism. And we think about that, everything from the level of spiritual, of, uh, spiritual formation for our youth through to our adults. We, the church knows how to do that. How can we do that in a way, in a manner in which we are also being informed about things like racism? I'm not suggesting that's the only thing that the church needs to be concerned about. That would be inappropriate. But I do think there's such a long-standing relationship of white Christian denominations to participating in racism that we have some significant work to do specifically <laughs> in that era, area because it's been so long um, unattended to or at least only done in an episodic way. Mm. So I think that that's really interesting. Just a just a little note for any churches that want to use the great U2 song about April 4 when they wrote it and they said early morning there is a live version where Bono corrects himself and says in the early evening I think it says so you have to find that live performance to get the correct time for April 4th there uh, for pride in the name of love. But you yeah, know that that date April 4th sticks in my mind because of U2. <laughs> mm -hmm, yeah, um, for sure. You know, um, I think that sounds like an exciting possibility. Yeah, we do know the practices. We do have the framework. We, we are used to the idea of forming people spiritually. And it would seem is uh, the, 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 um, the awareness to maintain for leaders is that part of spiritual awareness, whether it be discerning uh, God or forming community or serving others, a piece of that is being anti-racist. That seems like that would be incumbent upon, you know, loving others as we love ourselves kind of a thing that, but name it and make it, make it uh, explicit. Um, Reverend uh, Joe Barnt in the ELCA tradition draws attention to the fact that most of our Christian traditions of baptism include some language about being baptized into a community that is actively resisting evil. Yes. Yep. That's already there. It's, it's already there. Listen yep. in the values that we claim as a Christian community, but we have so rarely have applied it other than to say, we're not going to be part of the KKK. But even that in our present context has been fallen away for many members, in particular of the evangelical community. We have to name it as such because the evidence is right there. It was evident when the insurrection took place in DC. And right. those Christian symbols were present and they, I would claim, have forgotten their baptismal vows. Yep. That's Amen. simple, that direct, and that 
heretical a practice to move forward into that kind of activity, knowing that you've taken baptismal vows, which have said you would stand against the very thing you were supporting at that moment in history. Since you, brought up, since you brought up the uh, insurrection, I, uh, my dad, the day after, he, it was interesting because um, we've never had conversations about anti-racism or racism, um, but he, I could see he was like struggling you know, with it. He's evangelical, he's Republican, he's conservative. <clears throat> and uh, afterwards he wanted to ask me, okay, I, I think I recognize that racism was pre prevalent there, but in his mind, it was all about actually the election and making sure it was honest and all those kind yeah. of things. But he said, but I, but I see the symbols there. I recognize it is. How can, can you explain to me how it was based in racism? And I gave him some answers, but I would wanted to hear what hmm. you would say to my dad. <laughs> okay. How would I speak to your dad? I need to drop all my professor talk. <laughs> Apparently that won't go over well. It rarely does. <laughs> <laughs> and I would say things like this. In as much in this country as the history of racism has been focused on two twin dynamics, two processes, two streams, one being to ensure that people who have come to be called white received all kinds of benefits without earning it. And secondly, to keep that invisible to those who are receiving it, the evangelical church in particular has participated with that in as much and in particular in the ways in which a prosperity gospel has suggested that those were gifts of God disconnected mm -hmm. from the processes of inequity and racism that have made it possible for a member of the white community to receive that and think that we got it as a gift from God, when in fact we got it because of systems that have been put in place to deny it to people of color and to make sure we get it. The second conversation I'd have with your dad is to have both of us think about if we can acknowledge, and this is a big thing for a lot of us who are white, if we can acknowledge that we do and are the recipients of benefit based on our white skin identity and privilege, if that we can get to that point, I call it the second main paradigm shift. Um, I, would, I would even say the second conversion in a Christian concept that those of us who are white need to go through. The first being simply recognizing that racism as an oppressive force is not a matter of history, but it's present with us. The second, recognizing that we who are white receive benefits. But there's a third paradigm shift that I often invite white people within the Christian community to consider and reflect on. And that is to suggest that in fact, I think our spiritual formation is weakened by racism because we end up being more dependent on the systems of racism to provide and maintain us in our lives than we do on God's grace and providence. So that in the process, our spiritual muscles, if you will, are atrophied because we don't have to rely on God in the same way as mm. do those who are dealing with the oppressive power of racism on a daily basis. This is not to say that bad things never happen to white people. That's not true, obviously but that there are systems in place that mitigate against and stand in the way of full dependence on God's grace and providence in our lives. And racism is a leading one. Wow. That's good. That'll preach. That'll preach. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> awesome. So I don't Do know you... how your dad would, would um, 
respond, but I, I do enjoy having those conversations when possible. Oh, he's he's great. Uh, he he would uh, respond. I think he he's very reflective and would think deeply about yeah. it. So I think your, he your your dad seems like a good guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, uh, as a historian, I did when you were talking about you know lament, repentance, and uh, how we build that into church into the we have that built into the church and have that structure. But as a historian in a classroom setting, I hadn't thought about this before until really this last year, um, but how exhausting i uh, friends of mine who are people of color said that history presented uh so trauma based like always from one moment of trauma to the next moment of trauma and so while we do need to reflect on those as as white people how in your classroom settings do you avoid the like always trauma to trauma to trauma and uh yep. wear out your students with that mm-hmm. yeah so in the one class I teach, um, I'll talk about the second half of the African-American history survey course. I talk about some of the traps that we fall into in studying African-American history. One of them is the one you just recognized. Um, there's other ones there where we treat that history as if it was a compound, it's you know, sort of separated and it only matters for a member of the black community. I'm always telling my students, we all have to know this history because it's been so incredibly impactful. There's two key moves I make pedagogically in terms of my instruction in the class to try to avoid that trauma-based discourse, that trauma-based story that you just talked about. The first is to never just talk about black being beat black people being acted upon, but being agents in history themselves to show the ways in which it wasn't just responding to oppression, but people were initiating new things, whether it's in the music field, say jazz or the blues, or talking about the um, creative new organizing techniques that emerged out of the chapter of the long black freedom struggle that emerged in the mid 20th, in the mid 20th century and the long-term um, strategies that were put in place and realized the contributions to medicine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So agents in history in and of themselves, but also to tell that history from a perspective of abundance, that the African-American community story has always been one of celebration. It's been one of calling the, its own community to resistance in the midst of that oppression and in without any reference to it. So one of the things I talk about in terms of the black church is recognizing as my, again, referring, Dr. Stoltz has just reminded me about this yesterday in a conversation we had, that the black church has been the first institution in this country in which members of the African-American community could have as their own. And it was, it's, mm-hmm. therefore it, it's a very important understanding for those in the white church to have that conversations that we bring to the table about integration are not gonna be welcome in many instances because of that historical uh, role the, the black church has played. So what I say to white congregations is that your first question is not how you become more colorful, flex back to what we were talking about earlier, but how do you prepare the people in your congregation to actually resist racism? If you do that, the rest will follow. There'll be connections, there'll be um, movement there. But your question in the classroom, I'm always talking about agency, I'm talking about the stories that emerge from the community, not just in reaction to the white community. And I do that in telling the stories of 
everyone uh, ranging from Ida B. Wells to Septima Clark to Martin Luther King, um, a host of, of other figures who, who did this work, not just in reaction to white racism, but because that, that is what they've been trained to do, were supported and formed within their community to do and realized that um, and often just didn't give a damn about what the white people thought about what was going on. Some of that is, uh, it, 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 it reminds me, I, well, when I was a child, I remember my mother explaining to me that if I liked peanut butter, I should thank George Washington Carver. <laughs> you know, uh, that, um, and I remember, I just, you know, vaguely remember a little bit of that conversation as a child. But it, I, I never really went deeply into it to realize, yeah, that's a non-trauma-based story. You know, uh, and then just at the beginning of this month, there was something I saw on Facebook and I didn't do the historical analysis to find its verity at all, but I liked it. It was a list of inventions by African-Americans in this country, things like the lawnmower, air conditioning, a bunch of stuff by George Washington Carver. You know, and it was all these things that are uh, widely accepted in our in our culture, things that we appreciate, but they're stories that are that, that go untold. Right. Yeah, it's not just, for example, telling the story of the Harlem Renaissance. It's looking at a similar sort of re renaissance that happened in Chicago uh, in and around the same period. It's looking at the, the, oh, the, the music traditions that get ignored, um, the futuristic science fiction that's emerged from um, more recently people like N.K. Jemison and uh, others prior to her that, you know, are just, uh, or my probably my all-time favorite science fiction author, Octavia Butler, uh, you know, that's again, non-trauma-based, incredibly rich um, contributions to our community. Every, every fall I teach her book, Kindred, uh, which is a remarkable book about time travel and enslavement and um, the characters she develops and the, the concepts she explores is just incredibly rich. And my students haven't heard of her before. They right. don't know who, who she was. So that's, that's the kind of thing that I think is connecting to the really important question you're raising, Cody. One of the things you mentioned was um, in, in, in our congregations, it's almost like don't go aiming for diversity until you've aimed for anti-racism yep. and the rest yep. will follow. Absolutely. And, yeah. and uh, I guess that for me, that's a realization that's come, become more clear as the phrase anti-racist um, has become more, I guess, commonplace. Um, I mean, for a while it was, yeah, I'm not, it was, I'm not racist, which was a denial of what we carry to rather than saying, yeah, I'm not racist, rather say, I make, make a choice that I will be anti-racist. Um, and it, it, it's an interesting, how it, to me, it's, it's an interesting language that I think has, can be very effective. So I always have to laugh about this conversation, getting back to that uh, joke title Regina and I had talked about. In 95 or 96, we published an article in one of the National Mennonite Church magazines about why we were using the term anti-racism. Right. We got a lot of blowback back in the 90s about that using that term. It's too negative, doesn't invite people to a new space. And we did this 
article length explanation about why it's one of the positive, most positive <laughs> words we knew and both a theological and sort of a sociological background for why we chose that word and why we used it deliberately. People did not like that. That's one of those places where we start to get pushed to the margins a bit. Um, and now to see it being embraced and popularized, I, I have to just shake my head a little bit <laughs> as to the vagaries. You're just ahead of your time. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't, and the thing of it is, we were not doing anything particularly right. unique in the mid 90s. We had many partners in other denominations that were using similar language. We were the ones that were presenting that within the Mennonite family of churches. But um, we had partners in the LCA, right. um, a host of other uh, denominations that were doing similar sorts of things. One of the things that I find, and I, I, living where we are in Idaho in the Boise area, and it may be similar for you uh, in Missoula, uh, though you're, it's different on a college campus, we are a predominantly Anglo community, 97% Anglo, uh, in, at least in our suburb here of Boise. Um, no, not, I take that back. It's 94% Anglo, but it, it, it's, it's, um, and when we talk about diversity and diversity of relationships with people from different, uh, you know, ethnicities, nationalities, you know, um, it's like, it's hard to find sometimes those people because there's just, the population is not significant, which then can lead some people and some of the conversations I've had is, well, we're off the hook about talking about racism because there's not anybody to be racist against. Um, and, and to dig into the issues of white supremacy and being anti-racist gets them engaged in the conversation. Uh, even if you are part of a predominantly Anglo community, um, let's look at some of our assumptions. Let's look at our behaviors because um, then we'll find a place to engage in that conversation. And the harsh reality is almost without exception, white homogeneous neighborhoods, towns, um, townships, et cetera, in this country are never accidental. In almost every instance, they were deliberately came about either through the process of forced genocide and displacement of the indigenous community or also through restrictive covenants, which were exactly. clauses put into deeds of sale that made those properties available only to members of the white community. It's, it's presented positive or negative or never could be sold to a member of the black or Native American or um, Latinx community, et cetera. So the, I, the deepest irony is the people who say we don't have that problem here are often absolutely unaware and ignorant of the fact that the reason they don't address that problem is because it was deliberately uh, choices were made in the past to yeah. be sure they wouldn't be able to have that, that issue to deal with. And so I mean, that's a legacy that is intense and present. I mean, the other thing I find in a community like Missoula is that I know the demographics, the, the, the demographics, the statistics are such that we are predominantly white. However, I am regularly in rooms at this point virtually, but otherwise in person, where I'm one of only two white people in that room. There are members of the African-American community, members of the indigenous community are here. They're vibrant live communities. And to say that they don't exist, I think is more a function to acknowledge the relational patterns of those who haven't chosen to develop them or ask permission to enter into those spaces where it's appropriate. Um, 
as I always do. That's a, a core principle. I'm not going and forcing myself in those places, but when I'm welcome to be there, I, I find them incredibly rich and right. present in ways that the predominant storyline of a community would, would suggest isn't true, doesn't exist. But I think they're often there. Yeah. So what we struggle with here in our, so I'm a pastor of two congregations in the Elsie Valley, Lewis Clark Valley, Lewiston Clarkston. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, we, anytime there's a national incident and we talk about some issues surrounding race and anti-racism, that is a big thing that people say is like, oh, okay, that's, you know, but that's, that's so far away. That has nothing to do with us. And yet we ignore that literally we live on a, um, well, really on the outskirts of the edge of a reservation, you know, the, uh, the uh, Lapway is the center of the Nez Perce uh, reservation, the Nimipu. And, uh, and so I always try to like bring it in closer to that because they always think in terms of black and white I mean, they don't think about yeah, right, right here in our area we have. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, the Methodist church, because I'm a Methodist pastor of the two churches has been here well, you know, 150 years. So I guarantee there's some history and a story that maybe they just don't know about and haven't thought about or contemplated. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's a common common pattern within that for sure. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the things we you know, let's we're gonna wind down here in a little bit. And I know Cody's got five questions that he's gonna ask you, the hot seat questions. But what are what are some of the things? I mean, you've you got this you've got this book coming out that you're working on. You've got the consulting group wider wider stance. Is that right? Wider. It's, we use the German word wider stand. We pronounce it in English, but it's re German word for resistance. Um, uh -huh. Also, it evokes the idea of a wider stand, a, okay. a broader um, community. Yeah. Oh, wider. Yeah. You know, if you're going to go German, it sounds a little bit like Gelassenheit too. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. There's there's some resonance there with that whole concept as well. Yeah, a uh, little little bit of a yeah. uh, little bit of resistance in Galassenheit as well. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. what what do you see? Um, well, I let I want you to kind of like prognosticate. You know, you know do some do some fortune you know future uh, sooth you know telling or whatever. Tell me what the future looks like because when I watch when I read the the watch listed. Uh, paper you wrote that right I think right, was in the month after Trump's election mm -hmm. yep, yep. and it seemed very um, you, you very clearly uh, foreshadowed things that fully developed over those four years it's like you saw it coming so you you uh, you might be a good future caster <laughs> well I think that that's not true <laughs> I think maybe I got lucky there um it was also rather obvious to a certain degree. Yeah, right. Exactly. Where, 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 what's coming up, material. though? What, what's coming up? What do you see happening? I would. So one of the longest term patterns we see in this country is, you know, to use the big $10 word, the dialectic, right? The, the pendulum of back and forth. I don't. I, I hear people both in the historical community and in the anti-racism community to which I connect, suggesting on the one hand that perhaps we're at a moment where we're seeing the last gasp of this resurgence of the white nationalism, as particularly we're seeing significant demographic shifts in this country in which white people are no longer gonna be in the majority. I hear that theme, 
But I also know intuitively that we're going to see backlash. We're going to see backlash because we now have the first female black vice president in this country. Um, we have, I, 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 can, I am concerned for Amanda Gorman, the poet who gave this powerful poet um, in a po poetry presentation at uh, President Biden's and, Pre and Vice President Harris's inauguration. Uh, she's become a target, I'm pretty sure. So I, the backlash is something that's there that I, I think we will probably see in some form. Um, at the same time, I am, do I want to say the word cautiously hopeful? I, I don't know. I, I've seen some signs of a deeper level of engagement in the churches in which I'm working with than I've seen previously, alongside some of the rappling around and away from addressing issues of white power and privilege that I've seen in some major national denominations, one that I used to be associated with that has stepped away from some very direct work to once again go back into this sort of relational perspective of how can we get along which just is, is, has no record of effectiveness. So backlash is a big thing I'm concerned about. I'm cautiously hopeful about the church perhaps having a more prophetic role than it's played previously, um, but I don't know. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, an it's one of those, again, another big a liminal moment, right? This doorway, this threshold effect in between the possibility and the, the, the possibility of promise and the possibility of destruction are right there on this topic. And um, I feel that on a daily basis uh, in the conversations that I have. It, it sounds like in that dialect that the pendulum has not completely finished its swing that we witnessed over the last few years. It may, may, yeah, may yeah. It, it still has some energy in that. Uh, yep, yep. Yeah, yeah we'll see. Um, mm. So yeah, we'll, we will watch, we'll walk, we'll be ready. And uh, we'll be aware. Stay aware. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, Tobin, I sent you a message in chat. I don't know if you can. Yeah, I just saw it. Okay, good. If he, uh, perfect. Sweet. Okay. I may have to get your email address from you. So. Yeah, for sure. All righty. Uh, are we ready for the five questions? Are we at the I didn't know up? there were going to be two, but we're going to go. Sure. Let's talk about these five. Okay, these are the hot seat questions. We put every guest through the this uh, okay okay through this torture. Okay, first, Tobin, what are you drinking? So, what is your what's your go to drink or what's your drink of the moment that you're like? Okay, this is interesting. I would recommend this to somebody. My friends make fun of me because the thing I look forward to drinking on a regular basis is a cup of chocolate milk once I've done my CrossFit style workout in the morning. My one friend says, Tobin, are you 12? I love chocolate milk. So that's good. That's the first answer you're going to get. That's good. That's good. That's uh, perfect. And that, that has support from Olympic athletes. There that's you right. go. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> okay. What's your brand of chocolate milk? Ooh. Um, it's old fashioned chocolate milk, which is a problematic term, but it's like the one that doesn't separate from the chocolate on the bottom. And the, it just, so here's a, a metaphor for you. It's fully integrated all the time. <laughs> I love that chocolate milk. <laughs> That's awesome. Good. Okay. 
what are you reading? So what book is on your nightstand or what blog do you regularly turn, tune into or check out or, you know, an article or essay that you highly recommend? I am an avid science fiction reader. I made reference to Octavia Butler before. I just finished N.K. Jemisin's series, Stone Sky Obelisk Gate in the fifth season, which is stunning. Love that thing. Um, lots of blogs that I, I, I look at. Um, uh, I'll, I'll stick with N.K. Jemisin. Read her. Okay. She's great. Awesome. Very cool. Okay. Similar style of question. What are you watching? So what are you binging on Netflix or Hulu or what YouTube channel do you regularly check out or documentary or movie that you're uh, really uh, recommending right now? So many. <laughs> um, Cheryl and I have, that my partner Cheryl and I have just started walking, watching Schitt's Creek. Yeah. <laughs> really interesting particularly around class issues it's fascinating yep um and I, again i follow my science fiction pattern and i i just to watch any sort of major release on the, the science fiction genre awesome. um and what's what's irritating to those who watch it with me is i'll often do commentary and critique of the notions <laughs> of blackness or the uh, myth of redemptive violence that crops yep. up in these things, yep. and yep. the ways yep. in which they market in tokenism, but yep. I, I'm, I'm totally bought in. So the Marvel Universe, the Star Wars, Star Trek, you name it. Uh, <laughs> have you been watching The Expanse? Uh, you know, I haven't. I, I watched two or three of the first issues. I just couldn't quite get into it. I don't quite know why. I have to go back. Yeah, by, by the again. fifth season, all those, all those disparate elements have come together and it's a cohesive huh. piece. Actually, by the I'll fourth. I have to watch it. And then the fifth season, they all go separate, and it's harder to keep track of. It's an uh, interesting flow. Uh, but uh, awesome. for the same uh, yeah. issues that you identify, that's an interesting one. How about uh, uh, The Watchmen on HBO? Have you seen? So I, I haven't subscribed to The Watchmen. I've read all of the oh, comics, yeah. and I've yeah. read about the series of what they've done with race. But I just haven't found the time to get in and watch the episodes because they're gotcha. apparently really good in dealing with issues of racism in complex and nuanced ways. So I, that's on my list. I haven't yet watched it. Cool. All right. What are you listening to? So is there a new album that you, or an old album that you highly recommend? Or or it could be a podcast that you uh, recommend or listen to, or a book on tape, an audio book. So I, lo <laughs> I love The Moth. I'm a regular listener to The Moth podcast. I love storytelling. Yeah. That's a big thing. Um, my, my musical tastes are pretty eclectic. So last night I was listening to Motown while doing the dishes. The night before I listened to Shrek soundtrack because I love pop music also. Um, I, I love, I've been listening to a lot of, um, the Wailing Jennies recently. The sort of Ooh, yes, so yes. Good. Yep. Um, so it's very eclectic. I was just thinking I haven't listened to Cajun music. I'm going to listen to some of that tonight. Uh, so yeah, all over the place. That's good. Love it. Okay. And final question, question number five, you're doing really good so far. Yay. <laughs> We're not keeping score. We should. <laughs> Craig and I show up on your doorstep, maybe unexpectedly, but maybe we're invited. Who knows? Where are you taking us to dinner? Where, where are we going to eat? Okay, so what we're going to do is not quite what you expect in that I'm going to pull my prescient card out 
and note that before you arrived, I knew you were coming and I had baked one of the pies I'm known for, particularly my chocolate peanut butter pie, because in normal non-COVID world, every semester I have all my students over for a soup and pie night. I make hundreds of slices of pie, everything ranging from salted caramel apple pie to the aforementioned chocolate peanut butter pie to a, a killer chocolate jalapeno pie with a, with a cookie crumb crust. So I will feed you pie, and then I will also have made, knowing you're, you're coming, my all-time favorite meal of a spinach pie, sweet corn, and applesauce from our apple trees in our backyard. So that's going to be there. There won't be chocolate milk on the table, but we'll probably have a bottle of um, a local Pinot Noir or maybe... Uh, oh, I don't know. Some other wine will come up with that will match my spinach pie and go <laughs> well awesome. with the peanut butter, the chocolate peanut butter pie to come. So you would be at the Miller Shear table and uh, you would be we uh, well fed by the end of the evening. Mm, that, you know, Craig, I think we're coming. We're coming. I, I know the way. I've driven to Missoula often. <laughs> That's awesome. Craig, Craig, did you tip him off to that question? That was wow. You let you that was a, awesome. menu, a menu ready wow. to go. You know, uh, we've got to have Tobin back on just to go over some recipes. <laughs> ah, that was delicious. Right. Yeah, yeah. You Mennonites, you know how to cook, I'm guessing. I'm uh, yeah, That's, for sure. Absolutely. Wow. That's part of the culture. <laughs> it definitely <Awesome>. is. <laughs> So. All right, that's it. That's Very the five that's questions. You, folks. Yeah. So just here's a question that didn't fit anywhere in be earlier though, Tobin. Have you do you go to football games very often at uh, at the at the at the university? No, I am a sport. I'm sports dyslexic. My sons I, just throw up their hands. I don't watch sports, but if I can get away with it, we we uh, we made Sorry. several trips to Missoula when the coach who was there up until 2000. 15 i forgot his name delaney maybe um anyway he he, he left and when he left so did all the recruiting and all the coaches and all that but my son was going to go to university of montana and that is the best gotcha. school to go watch a football game at because the front row seats are like 15 feet from the sidelines it's like it's right. almost like a hockey game and it's yeah, such I, a I loud stadium it's in a bowl it's it's great that's cool. Yeah, absolutely. So, it's a it's a beautiful town. I I, I kind of like it uh, up there around the around the university. So, it's yeah. yeah, it's yeah, pretty. It's I a would, great place. We like. It I here. wouldn't mind living there, to be honest. So. Yeah. Well, Tobin, thank you for uh, spending time with us. Yeah, you bet. It was a delight. I really appreciated the conversation. So did we. We'll get this uh, put up uh, in a in a few days, actually, and uh, have it out there. I have I have some uh, contact information for you that I'll put on the podcast. Uh, you, you've got a, uh, a blog page. I've I found uh, the university page, um, and uh, I'm trying to remember if you have some social media accounts. Yeah, you do on Facebook, obviously. Uh, so, yep, yep, right. All right. Well, very good. Well, thanks so much, folks. Very very fun talking with you. Have a great day. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for being with us. You bet. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Well, we're still recording, so you know. Okay. Well, do we have any wrap-up? Anything to say what we're, what's coming next? Stay tuned. 
Uh, boy, I don't remember what's coming next. Yeah, I, I don't either. <laughs> hey, I tell you, so, I'll tell you something that's coming uh, right after Ash Wednesday. Yes. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right after Ash Wednesday. In fact, maybe uh, post. Uh, what would you What would you call it? Ash Thursday. I don't know. Is there a name for the Thursday? I don't know. I guess I know. first day of first day of Lent. No, I, don't I think know. it might be Smudge Smudge Thursday. <laughs> there you <laughs> it's go. Like, um, on Smudge Thursday, I think I might be coming up your way. Okay. So All right. the, I have, uh, it's not prescient to the, this is not pertinent to the recording, but I haven't been yet. I haven't taken your car in yet, but I will do that probably tomorrow. Okay. All right. Yeah, and so that, that, that determines whether or not I'll be coming up. So if, <laughs> okay. if I, if I did come up, if we have time, we can maybe do a recording, um, in the same room. That would be awesome. Okay. Depends on the on schedule. I'll, so. get on it. I'll get it. I'll get on it. All right. Um, all right. Well, Hey, that was a great conversation. Really. It was all great right. to catch up with Tobin. And I think one of the challenges that, that I, I'm really happy the way he articulated, um, was, uh, it, it seems like there's, is, there is a place for old white guys like us to have an active, meaningful voice in this conversation for Ooh. dismantling racism. But, and, but go ahead. But he's earned that place, though, too. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Um, but I think that means also the impetus is on us or the, the challenges to us. Go earn that spot. That's right. So, That's right. That's right. Build yeah. some relationships first. Although it is interesting, he talked about, I, I wanted to ask him about this. Like, I wonder now, I don't know that he could start right now as he did back then maybe to white churches perhaps but as a 20 year old just showing up with hey i got this knowledge for you that you need to because that doesn't play very well uh these days it seems like well <laughs> a, yeah a just expertise in general a lot of people are like but then a 20 year old you know so yeah, I, th I think that's, pro you know, we, I probably, he was probably in our area, you know, we connected with him before I was 30. It was probably, you know, 26, 27, maybe. And he was younger than I was then. I remember that. Uh, but he is had he, a lot of... Is he, has he caught up? Is he... <laughs> I, I, yeah, he, he's a lot closer than he used to be. <laughs> in back, in back. Yeah, anyway. So, yeah, we, we're, we're getting old, but... Uh, Anyway, that was really good. So good. Um, excellent, excellent. Well, have, great, uh, I, I'm that's awesome that we were, got to debut a song. That's cool too. That beautiful. Yeah, song. yeah, that was that was fun. Um, so the um, hopefully we'll, you know maybe we can get some more uh, good music on here, yeah. fresh uh, off the press. Heck yeah, very so. very cool. All right, okay, we're good. See you next week, same time, same place. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Bye. See ya. Bye.
Thanks for joining Cody Stauffer and me, Craig Morton, for this podcast. We simply try to record and upload without much editing. What you get is live conversation with all its ignorance and insight, wisdom and foolishness, sometimes more of one than the other, and occasionally profound things will be said, but entirely by accident. Make sure to follow us on Facebook at the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast. We'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment. And look for upcoming Facebook Live podcasts where you can interact with our guests. Also, we can be found on Twitter as at All That's Holy. Our intro and outro music is by At The Speed Of Darkness. Support At The Speed Of Darkness on Bandcamp and buy his music there as well as follow him on Instagram at at the speed of darkness. 